Pulp Arcana, the vintage pulp paperback morgue. just an ordinary garbage dump on peaceful Cape Cod. No one ever imagined that conditions were perfect for multiple breeding, that it was a warm womb, fetid, moist, and with food so plentiful that everything crawling, creeping, and slithering could gorge to satiation. Then the change in poison control was made, and the huge mutants began to leave their nest in search of human flesh. It's now time for the segment of factoids. Usually I'm going to restrict this to a minimal of five or so. And this will do with topics concerning anything in the book as minute as if a character was drinking tea. Like if it was drinking Earl Grey tea. I might give you five facts about Earl Grey tea. Or it might be as... Topical as today, cockroaches for the nest, which is what I'm choosing to do. As if there wasn't enough cockroach facts shoved and crammed into this book alone from Gregory A. Douglas. So, okay, so cockroaches. So they're notorious pests of revulsion. They're known for their adaptability, their pesky, tenacious nature. So... Of the over 4,600 species of cockroaches, many measure between 1 to 2 inches. In Central and South America, the megaloblata has a wingspan measure of 8 inches, and that could be, is known as the largest cockroach found in the world in that region. Now, the genesis of cockroaches date back to over 300 million ages ago. In a marshy span known as the Carboniferous Period, swampy topography anointed amphibians as the apex land vertebrae creature. Stranger still, the average global temp was 68 degrees Fahrenheit with a scarcity of tropical seasons. The cooling and dropping of the climate led to the Carboniferous rainforest collapse. It was also a period of heavy mountain shifts that formed the conglomerate supercontinent known as Pangaea. So, cockroaches go back, obviously, epochs ago, way before mankind. Uh, back to the Pangaea fear. That was a more primitive form of them from my research. Um, mostly in the book, cart. Uh, of the nest they don't go about the origins or the history of cockroaches it's more of like their nature and scientific and biological facts about them so back then in the carboniferous period 300 million years ago 
other insects of that time, you might be wondering, since this was a very swampy region, uh, there was a 30-inch dragonflies at that time, and there was also the 28-inch colossal scorpion known as the Palmon Palmonoscorpius. There we go, I got it out. They found it. They actually found fossils of this in Scotland. And this thing is huge. It's black. And you can see pictures of it long extinct. Because if you can imagine a 28-inch scorpion, the thing is an enormous arachnid. Very formidable and imposing. On to the more cockroach factoids. So... They aren't known as being aggressive like in this book. They aren't known for assaulting humans or other bellicose offenses because they're known as scavengers because it's not in their natures. So they gorge on rotting and moldering flesh and garbage, anything organic essentially. They f therefore, they do carry certain diseases and are able to contaminate that way but not through transmission of any venomous sort. So, that's obviously a big contradiction to this story, but this is, has to do with cockroaches that obviously were mutant cockroaches due to the toxic waste in the garbage land. So, one last factoid and myth I wanted to go over for here is the myth that cockroaches would survive a nuclear holocaust. That's been a long one uh, ever since atom bombs and nuclear warfare and the hysteria of it dating back to the 30s and 40s. So, Mythbusters from the Discovery Channel or wherever they're from, National Geographic, I don't know, apparently did a segment where they put the cockroaches to a radon test, and the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, where that myth and those stories come from is the aftermath and the perdition that it left, there was nothing but cockroaches alive, is what reports say from back then. So they put it to the test. They tested several groups of cockroaches and exposed them to radon. And after they were radiated, the, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was 10,000 units of radon, apparently. And they were exposed to it for 30 days. And of the roaches, 10% 10 per, 10 survived, actually. After a 30-day experiment, the more exposure, the more the radon that they did expose them to, they eventually died, though. I mean, obviously, they're, they're very survivalist type of creatures to have survived for that long. As I mentioned in the beginning, is uh, their adaptability, and that's a testament of that. So, this was the five factoid segment of The Nest. 
You know what, after I did all this research, I was like, you know what, I should have just done five factoids on Cape Cod. That's interesting enough, the posh setting of this book. But, didn't think about it in time, because if we didn't get enough cockroach factoids. But, I'm sure I'll pick up another book in the future that I'll be reviewing where Cape Cod or... Cape Cod will be a setting. It's, uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a region in the northeast of America where it's known as a luxurious area. Even the Cape Cod Baseball League has been around there for over a hundred years. A lot of rich people sailing regattas, uh, the whole nine. Anyway. This was JBM. I'm out. Alright, welcome to the Nest. Alright, welcome to the 1980 horror paperback by Gregory A. Douglas, a.k.a. Eli Cantor. This is JBM from VillainNews.com. I'm with Hezekiah St. Raven. He's... You checking in? Yep, I am right here. All right, so yeah, we joined up, and I know that this was your book of the month in, uh, what is it, Books of Horror Book Club? Yep, Books of Horror Book Club. Yeah, because this book really got a lot of talk this winter after the announcement that uh, the paperbacks from Hell line from from Valencourt was going to release four or five books, if I'm not mistaken. And the first one that they released was this April. It was The Nest, or it was in March, I believe, actually. So a lot of people were up on that. And um, what really, what originally drew me to The Nest was in, uh, what's his name, Will Erickson's horror blog, Too Much Horror Fiction. He reviewed The Nest back in 2014, and I remember him praising the prose to be really purple and descriptive, and that, that that's what caught my interest, but it's always been an expensive book. It's out of print. There's been a few editions of it. The first one came out. I don't know if the first one was the 1980 Zebra one, because there's another edition where it's the cover. It's the red cover, red and white cover. Do you know the two? two uh, covers I'm talking about? I have seen them, yeah. I think the Zebra one is the first, but I'm not completely sure. Yeah, if if I were to venture to guess, yeah. And so this was early 80s Zebra. If it was probably in the later 80s, this cockroach would probably have a skull face. <laughs> yes. It'd be all, all black. All black with a skull. <laughs> It would be a humanoid cockroach with with a black canvas, and I do like those those traditional, I guess traditional, stereotypical maybe is a better word, uh, zebra covers. They oh, are yeah. pretty cool, but but they rarely show you what's the book is going to be about. Right, but they look it's, nice. It, it's it's a prop. It's a character prop of. Usually one of the characters, it could be, I remember in uh, Jack Shapiro's Hocus Pocus, it's got the marionette that's the skull. 
one of the classic zebra ones. But yeah. uh, that's only just a minor prop in the movie. It's it's the girls like marionette in her room that she. I kind of lost you there, I think. Oh, yeah, you hear me again? The recording's yeah. still going, at least. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I was just mentioning on that. So, yeah, the zebra colors usually didn't have much to do, but it would be a skull. Anyway, so this one's actually pretty detailed, though. So it's it's teal and green, and I have it in my hand right now. Um Usually they're pretty pricey, like 30 or 40 bucks for years. That's why I never bought it all these years. I couldn't find a copy affordable until last summer, 2018. I found one for about 20 bucks and I jumped on it. So that was a good score. And I'd have to say that the pros is, is it lives up to what, will describes it as it is pretty purple and descriptive and graphic you get your serving as a horror fan what do you think i think the prose is great uh, it's like the book in general you know the story and the characters they're very just the average kind of creature horror and the characters you know here's the scientists and here's the the, the tough guys and and here's the women but the prose is what just really makes it a, a unique book i've never read a combination of of that really descriptive cool elaborate prose with that type of a story before and in that type of story you mean the the, the amount of scientific research that's crammed in there oh there's a lot of that too yeah i wonder how much well i wonder how much of it's real though he, he claimed a lot of it is so that's kind of cool. Well, in the uh, I'm going to go through the opening pages here of my copy of the Nest. I know he thanks and he and he has some citations of writing this book because he did do a lot of research and he thanks some biologists here, and um, he even thanks Eli Cantor in his author foreword. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I'll read it. I'm, I'm there right now. So it says, thanks are due to novelist Eli Cantor for suggesting that an island could be as terrorized by an invasion of mutant insects as by killer sharks <laughs> off its beaches. <laughs> that kind of reminds so, me of... Uh, kind of talk kind of reminds about congratulatory. Yeah. It's kind of like when uh, V.C. Andrews Talks about how great Andrew Niederman is. <laughs> like you're, you're the same person. Go ahead and read some of his books. Yeah, <laughs> he's only been writing them longer than her. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's... <laughs> At this point, because she's been dead since what the early nineties. Yeah, something like that. He's like he's the main VC Andrews at this point. But it's just it's it's funny. He's like, you know, talking about each other like they're different people. Like. I don't know. I mean, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So Eli Cantor pulls a Andrew Niederman, then I guess here, <laughs> and and I like how he's like for suggesting that an island could be as terrorized by 
in an invasion of mutant insects as by killer sharks off beaches. So basically he's congratulating himself or thanking himself for ripping off jaws with pretty much cockroaches. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a good one. I thought that I read that before I did this. Got a few guffaws out of that. And then, um, so then he goes on to thank the animal behavior of Dr. B. Faber of the American Museum of Natural History in Columbia University. So Eli has a lot of New York City ties. I'm pretty sure he went to NYU and even got a degree in Harvard Law from my research. Um, before we get into the book, we could go over my Eli Cantor research that I wrote down about him. So, yeah, he was a very multi-talented man. He was a playwright, composer, poet, and novelist. He lived to be 93 years old. He was born in 1913 and died in 2006. So, had an immensely abundant, prolific career in terms of the arts. Did you know anything about him? Um, Not a whole lot. I just looked it up and saw that he was the person who actually was the author, but I didn't know a whole lot about his life. Yeah, I guess since his his artistry went so, so diverse, it explains why he only wrote a handful of novels. And yeah. um, so I, I was really pleased. You could tell he's a scholarly man and... It had a lot of Michael Crichton, Dan Brown vibes throughout in terms of information and science and facts and it packed in there. So that's that's the kind I like. I like reading Michael Crichton books. Um, so that's how I felt. Also, he was born in the Bronx, New York. He, he had an artistic flair for the classical arts, music. He wrote articles for Esquire. He was even actually the fiction editor for Esquire. I don't know what time period, but... So he was definitely a big player throughout the 20th century in New York City, in the literary world, in the arts world. Um, and yet, he's not, not very famous now in terms of mainstream. No, I had never heard of them. Yeah. But I'm sure in old NYC liberal arts world, his name might be more renowned. So his dad, so he was born into privilege. His, His father owned a printing business, which Eli eventually successfully managed. And apparently he was a pioneer and very innovative in that field, in the printing field, and he turned that into a juggernaut, too. Um, Most people won't even accomplish a smidgen of what he accomplished, so I found that very interesting. So there's definitely plenty of reasons to go out and read this book, I'd say. So we could get back to the plot and everything. So this is set on in Cape um, Cod, 
which is located in the northeast U.S. Um, where do you live? Are you you live in the U.S. or? Yeah, I live in uh, Utah, so pretty far away from there. Did you grow up in Utah? I grew up in Washington State, actually, on the uh, the east side. So not the rainy Seattle area, but still Washington State. Food then. Good seafood then. Yeah, we're, we're, my side had a. Uh, anytime you see Washington apples, those literally grew all around my town. Yeah, I've heard about that. And um, I'm from Michigan, and apple orchards are pretty huge here. It's like some states, apples don't even grow. And I know apple orchards are huge around Halloween season and stuff. Yeah. Or apple- is the cider mill big around Washington in the autumn? Uh, not a whole lot. There do there is, you know, some going out and picking apples. Another thing that's really big is uh, hop fields. Pretty much any beer, American beer that you drink, is going to have hops that grew right across the street from where I lived. Oh, really? It's a, it's a very agricultural area. Okay, so this is set in Cape Cod, and when you think of Cape Cod, what are what are some of the general things that you would associate with Cape Cod? Oh, vacationers, big yeah. houses. Very ritzy. Yeah, expensive area. Yeah, and uh, they also have the Cape Cod Baseball League that dates back to the 1800s, if I'm not mistaken, which is an exclusive league for top prospects in MLB. And um, I don't know if Yorkie Island actually exists. Do you know? I don't think it does. I think he made it up. But yeah, it sounds I like just, he based it. Yeah, I think it's just a general... Uh, it, it must be based off some one of the islands in Cape Cod. Cause yeah, I Cape think so. Because Cape Cod essentially takes up a big region of that area along the Atlantic coast. And... Yeah, it could have been any. I mean, the guy was rich and lived in New York, so of course he had probably a villa on Cape Cod, or at least rented a few of them at a time or two. He definitely but, did seem to know the area. Yeah, I just felt like the name Yorkie Town felt fake, so I I didn't even do any research. I read something. I don't remember where it was. That he based it on something, and I thought it was in the intro, but maybe not. Maybe it was just on a. Maybe it was on that too much horror fiction entry. Did you read his review of it, or what entry did, you referred to? Yeah, I read the the review quite a while ago, way yeah, before it came out. Came, yeah, that article uh, came out. 
And I thought it was interesting that he found the he found the book in a used bookstore in Utah. Oh, is that what he says? Yeah, I was like, hey, he got it around here. That's pretty cool. <laughs> what is the book market like in your area? Uh, there's a pretty big used bookstore right here. Other than that, not a whole lot. A lot of bookstores closed. I think there's a, there's a Barnes & Noble, I believe, that's still open, but they don't have much in terms of you know, horror anymore. What about used bookstores? Uh, are you able to find some decent? Yeah, there's, there's one here. I can't remember what it's called, but it's pretty big and has a, has a lot of comics and a lot of collectibles in general. Nice. Yeah, I'm from Metro Detroit, so there's a decent amount of bookstores here, and then there's the famous King Bookstore in Detroit, which I still haven't been to, which I really yearn for. It's the four-story building of used bookstores. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard about that. Yeah, you should have probably, you've probably seen pictures of it. I've, I've only heard about it because of online and I live in the area. I just don't like to frequent Detroit for obvious violent reasons. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds, that, that, that's a kind of real life horror, maybe. Yeah, that's a little too close for horror. I like my horror in print on, on pages. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so right from the bat in the, uh, in the prologue of this, I don't think it's a prologue. I think it's just chapter one. Uh, he gets really descriptive about the cockroaches and he gets really poetic here. I mean, he's bending those words and he's throwing, he's throwing out those expensive adjectives. Yeah, I was, I started reading this and went, man, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> That's exactly what I was seeking out. I, I I love the over descriptive type of stuff when they oh yeah describe it down to the veins veins in someone's wrist or or the bifurcates in a tree. And yeah, I go on. I love really just dis- I love really descriptive prose in a book. I see people say, oh, there's. It's overly descriptive. It's boring. And I go, okay, that's going to be a book that I'm going to like. Yeah, that's what I seek out. I'm like, sweet. Uh, And people like to say Stephen King is overly descriptive, but I don't really think of him that way. He doesn't get descriptive about certain objects or anything. He's usually character-oriented. Yeah, he just, he puts a lot in his books, you know, with... uh, I can't remember what where I read it, but they were saying that he never just has a magazine cover. He always tells you who's on the magazine and, and what the story is about and all that. So you get a really good, uh, you know, sense that you were there in his book. Yeah, I feel he isn't that, that stylish with it. And he more so goes to backgrounds about different characters and their lives and everything kind of like how the it saga goes how it's just like 
he introduces it's like the loser club and he goes through all them and then it fast forward 20 years for when they come back but he goes over the narrative of each one of the loser club's characters and their life and everything and all their failures and successes and yeah one of my favorites is uh christine and i read that when i was in high school so i was like just you know the perfect age for it because that's what the characters were and and I'm just reading and even though it was written, oh gosh, like way before me, I was reading like, yeah, this is this is what high school's like. <laughs> so uh what other horror books did you read growing up? Oh well, Books of Blood. That was one boy. I read those and I was just wow. That was a whole new thing because I I had mostly just stuck with Stephen King before that. And then I read the Clive Barker and it was like, okay, this is, this is something different. It was, it was more, you know, kind of like the dark fantasy. Yeah. It's not like, like, Oh, here's a scary thing happening. It's more just like, wow, it's a really weird world where yeah, taps into that pulsating realm. Yeah. And I really like that. And, and Amityville horror that was another one of the very first ones uh, of first adult horror books I read. And I really liked it. And by that time, everybody knew, you know, it's probably not real, but I didn't care. It was, it was still a cool book. Yeah. Speaking of Amityville horror, you could even say that kind of slips into the in invasive insectoid subgenre of horror paperback. Yeah. yeah there's <laughs> With, all the flies. Even on quite literally printed on the book the editions back in the 70s remember how it's the book the flies printed on the chapter pages yeah i think that was the one i read actually although i just checked it out from the library but i kind of remember that on there i know it's like they kept like haunting you and and they were so pesky i, I like that little small gimmick effect and and even though you know, the the ghost parts probably weren't real. The murder was real. So there is something to Amityville Horror that is still real. So that's kind of freaky. Yeah, and there was a lot of news reports, and they did the paranormal investigations, and Jay Anson goes over all that the intro and stuff and he's he always just pounds that into your head like this is based off true events this is <laughs> yeah. actual happening this is an actual haunting and you're like holy shit <laughs> and that was the first book that really sucked me in as a horror fan i'm like i'm like yeah. i didn't know books could be this scary i remember reading it i think it was when i was a freshman in high school i was sitting there reading it and you just really get into the book and then the bell rings. Oh, it's lunch is over. It's like, ah, it freaks you out because you're just really into it. <laughs> Yo. Something, another thing that I remember as a kid, just as a story that I always thought would make a, a pretty cool book is the haunted, uh, that haunted Toys R Us in California. That's another supposedly true thing. The haunted Toys R Us in California. It must be shut down, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it closed when they closed the chain, but it was still open, I think, clear until the end because I, I read a few articles about it. But when I was a little kid, I was watching That's Incredible. 
and it had a story. And oh man, that was like it, it just tore me in half because oh, it's a toy store. That's cool. Ah, but it's it's haunted and there's ghosts and you know things rolling around at night and here's a picture of the ghost. Oh, it was very scary. So, so someone should write something about that. That'd be kind of cool. You're right. That's what I was just thinking 10 seconds ago when you were mentioning it. It's like, that'd be the perfect place to haunt and see them animated. Yeah. Um, I was going to go over some more uh, invasive insects, subgenre of horror books. Now, my internet was going out earlier today, so I couldn't do that much in-depth research. But I wrote down about 10 uh, insect horror books. Um, I'll go over these. You could interject at any time if you... Uh, I haven't read a whole lot, but we'll see. Uh, Guy N. Smith, of course, had a few because there wasn't a monster or creature that he didn't horrify. Oh, yeah, his, uh, his crab books. Yeah. What do you say that is aquatic or crustacean horror? Uh, yeah, something like that. I wouldn't fit that in the insect genre or category. But he did the locust. That's one. Um, wasn't able to read the plot synopsis, but there's also the abomination. He throws a lot of insects in there. Uh, uh, slugs from uh, Sean Huffman. Yeah, I read Slugs a few years back. That was that's a gross book. What made you read Slugs? Well, I was just kind of reading a lot of the the older. Just in the space. Yeah, I was just like thinking, oh, okay, I'll read some of the older horror books I haven't read, and I I saw that one. I go, that'll be a good one. But oh man, that's that's got some really disgusting stuff in it, and not, that's just this. That's another one that got a movie made out of an age. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've heard it's it's not as good as a book, but, you know, they never are. Yeah, it was on YouTube for years, and The Nest also was made into a Roger Corman film. Did you get a chance to check that out? No, I meant to, but I didn't. I definitely still want to, because the description of it sounds pretty weird. But it doesn't sound as good as the book, because it sounds like they changed it a lot. Yes, renovation facelift of Gregory A. Douglas. It feels, it feels got it's got that West Coast beach feel. You know how there's the West Coast beach feel, and then there's yeah. the East Coast beach. And of course, back then they were filming a lot of those movies back in California, and it was a time when Roger Corman was producing a lot of these schlocky exploitation where just throw tits in there every 10 minutes and interpose it with gore and that's pretty much what they do they kind of cut the science out of it and kind of turn it into like just a local yeah that's kind of too bad he gets infected by the cockroaches in a cave on the beach which we all know there is no caves in the beach on the east coast so it feels kind of yeah. weird in, in that sense and he turns into this kind of like the fly monsters 
felt like they were ripping off of. But apparently Eli Cantor felt like satisfied with that adaptation according to his daughter after his death. Yeah, that's good that he liked it. Yeah, it's good that he liked it. I, I, I think he, he knew what he was expecting. He was giving it, signing it over to Roger Corman. Yeah. I think cutting out the science, yeah, kind of needs that, though. That made it unique. It makes sense for the late 80s in the market that you're going for in the exploitation. Yeah, yeah they I mean, wouldn't necessarily need it. Yeah, you, you don't want a bunch of 13-year-olds having a sleepover in the late 80s and renting the nest and then being bombarded with uh, insect documentary. It's pretty weird, though, how, you know, he kind of was making that whole new creature at the end. Yeah, I felt it was trash. I watched it last summer, so I don't have the freshest of memories, but it just felt like your standard Roger Corman schlock and recipe, like, all baked and slapped with the nest on it. I know there was a Blu-ray release, but... uh, it felt nothing like the book, so of course that tainted it. But yeah, I'll watch it one of these days, I suppose. No, you won't. Don't lie. <laughs> well, I I might. I don't watch a whole <laughs> lot of movies. I mostly just stick with books. But talk about your diet of movies. What, what's your diet of movies? Uh, not a whole lot. I want I. Okay, there's so a movie. You're definitely not going to get to the nest then. <laughs> Probably not, unless I well, if I really set out to do it. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, watching. We've always lived in the castle. When was that an adaptation? It, it's brand new. It's just coming out. Is that going to be like Lifetime, like Flowers in the Attic was? I'm hoping it's not. I'm hope everything I've heard. They've said it really sticks to the book. And it has a, a good sense of dread to it. Mm-hmm. So that's hopefully that's one I've always wanted to read. So you've oh, read it, it I'm assuming. It's really good. Yeah, that's uh that's our upcoming book in the book club. Is I thought Elizabeth was this month. So well, is they're short books, so we're going to do both. Oh, okay. If the books yeah. are, you know, under 200 pages, a lot of times we'll do two. So we're doing Elizabeth, and and we've always lived in the castle. Okay, so those of you that don't know, Hezekiah um, helps administrate the Books of Horror book club. Um, he does a good job at writing. And recaps and narratives and engaging in discussions on this book of horror genres and yeah I like reading your descriptions and everything they're pretty entertaining so that's why I wanted to do this review with you and discussion about the nest so thanks a lot for that I think it's a pretty fun book club it's not you know a lot of the ones where they go okay here's your book come back at the end of the month we'll talk about it we do a lot of like every other day, every chapter or so we do a write up and and we really get into the the details of the book, things that you might not 
remember at the end of the month, but they're still worth talking about. Yeah, I had, I had some good times talking about the nest last month for sure. It was kind of coincidental that you guys were reading it and uh, I was finishing up the nest because because I had put it aside um, after being busy for months and then I picked it up back in the winter and then I got the flu and stuff and then I got around to finishing it in March and April right when uh, the Valencourt reprint was coming out and everyone was reading it and everything so yeah I think that's why it got chosen we uh we do a topic and then the people in the group nominate books and then we vote on it and I so just what, thought, yeah. what edition of this book did you get tell the people I have I have the the uh Valencourt ebook so I don't even have a physical copy of it but if I get one it would probably be the new one just for price wise. Are you an ebook guy? What what's yeah. your con- collection consist of? What's this assemblage detail for us? Basically just ebooks and a few physical paperbacks. The thing with the ebooks is they take up a lot less room. So Yeah. I have other than a pretty small apartment. Hmm? Yeah, I hear you there. I have to keep most of my shit at my parents' house. It's like I never take it wherever I move, and so yeah, I just a little small collection and rotate it whenever I go over there and stuff. Yeah, so there's just not a lot of room, so I thought, well, let's do the ebook thing. And but you've been in the horror genre and a fan for. When the early eighties? Uh yeah. Pretty much since I was a little kid. I was I was born in, in seventy-four. And uh as a the seventies was an interesting time to to nice. uh to the you know, that was kind of a lot of when the horror movies were starting. And in real life there's all the serial killers and stuff. There's even a there's an anthology of Horror books that are or horror short stories set in the seventies. It's called uh, Blood, Sweat, and Fears. It's a pretty cool anthology for that kind of seventies uh, vibe. But yeah, I started reading uh, short stories like uh, folk folk tales and stuff, and uh, the creepier, scarier urban legends, and uh, then. When I started high school was when I moved into the adult horror books with Stephen King. And then that moved into Barker and and the other guys. Yeah, so you're uh, old enough to remember when they were on at convenience stores and book racks and drug stores more prevalent. Yeah, as a little kid, I would go over and I would look at them, look at all the covers I, I was too scared to actually, you know, uh, I don't know if I want to read one of these yet, but as I look <laughs> at the covers, yeah, I remember glorious. One of the, uh, I bought Pet Cemetery for my dad for his birthday, just based on the cover. I had the one that had the cat on the front, and I was like, yeah, 
That's a good one. <laughs> Who bought it for you? You bought it for him? I, I bought it for my dad for his birthday. And with, <laughs> with, with, kind of in the back of my head going, one of these days I'm going to read this thing. <laughs> That's funny. Was that the one with the big cat on the cover? Yeah. With, with his mouth open ferociously? It, yes. And I was like, ah, it looks like a cool one. Uh, uh, another really early one I read was was Dance Macabre, his uh, King's first nonfiction his, book. Yeah, his history of horror literature. Yeah, I really like that. That that's pretty much what kicked off the. Oh, okay, I got to really re- read a lot of these things. Yeah, and for those of you that don't have that, if you do enough book hunting, you could usually run around a copy for under five bucks and. It's worth it. He writes at a time where he was still in his prime. It was it was the late seventies when he published it, or maybe the early eighties. I don't quite mm, recall. Something like that. I don't remember either. But so yeah, he he kind of chronicles the uh, history of horror literature from his point of view, and even comments on sword and sorcery genre, another genre that I'm a fan of, and uh, pretty sure he denounces. Robert E. Howard in it and and kind of disparages the sword and sorcery genre as a genre for geeks who wish to be <laughs> have Herculean strength but will never get the girl and stuff. Uh, that's that's too bad. I don't remember that part really, but that's a genre I've not read a whole lot of. Kind of liked it when I was a kid though. Well. You couldn't have missed it if you grew up in that age because that was when the Savage Sword of Conan books yeah. were coming out. And that was tremendously successful that it led to the the comic book. And that ran all throughout the 70s and into the early 90s. Um, then obviously the movies came pretty big in the early 80s after Conan the Barbarian success. So you never liked and, the sword and sorcery genre? Uh, a little bit. Not a whole lot. I, I did like He-Man. Yeah. The uh, the toy line, which was more or less kind of based on Conan. Yeah, it was definitely a branch in there, and they tried to tap into some sci-fi, too. Um. Anyway, I could wrap up the uh, other insect books that I didn't mention. The There's the Ants by T- Peter Tremaine. You know of that one? I, I know it, but I haven't read it. Then there's the Scorpion series by Michael R. Lineker. That's about um, scorpions getting radiation exposure. Very similar to, and then mutating into larger creatures, and the locals kind of gang up and try to overthrow them or thwart them. And so it's kind of similar. You familiar with that series? Uh, it sounds vaguely familiar, but that's another one I haven't read. That's another late seventies, early eighties one. Um, too much horror it, fiction. Yeah, too much horror fiction does a blog on it. Um, so that's how I found that one too. Then Edward Lee has had a slither 
ever read. Have you ever read Slither from Edward Lee? I've not read that. I've only read one Edward Lee book actually so far. It was uh, City Infernal, which I liked it, but after it was not near the extreme horror that I had prepared myself for, just because you know his uh, his reputation. <laughs> yeah, it it leaves people shocked and speechless whenever they come back. <laughs> Yeah, the big head. <laughs> but uh, I want to get Coven from his, but his books are getting more expensive and popular and harder to find. That's the one nice thing about ebooks too. As long as it's available, <laughs> they're not going to be near as expensive. Yeah, you may not have it, but at least you can have read it. So, and there's there's a book called Blight had to do with some sort of killer moths or butterflies or some shit. Um, Sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't able to do much in-depth research on it because, like I said, it's pretty obstructed right now. So I'm sorry. I'm so- Anyway, um... Let's get back to the nest and everything. We haven't even really gotten into it. So the opening, very poetic, a cornucopia of garbage. They're cu- they're formed up, mutating, rapid rate. Um, what's first is, is the rabbit found dead or is the dog attacked or something? Uh, well. They, I think it was that they, they initially they're attacking the rats and then they move out of the dump and that's when they attack the dog and they pretty much just like he's gone. They just they devour all of him and then eventually they find his ear in a tree. Is so that that's when kinda, they find it? It was it was later on when they go back to look for him. Oh, okay. thanks. And and they find the tr- the ear in the tree, and I was like, "This is gonna be an interesting book, dog ears and trees." So I evolved that rabbit of hey, we're killing rats. Okay, now we're killing rabbits. Now we're killing dogs. Now we're humans. Yeah, it goes quickly. That's representing. And um, oh, the, that rabbit seems pretty gross. Tell me about it. What do you remember? Well, they they well they they attack through eyes. They eat through your eye into your brain, and it is very descriptive with the rabbit. It, it mentions that it clicks as it breaks through your cornea. I did not know that it'd make a sound because I thought your cornea was soft, but I, I don't know. I have an eyeball, not an eyeball phobia, but. When something happens to an eyeball, that's like to me. So they're describing that, and then the, the eyeball juice gushing out, and I'm just, oh, this is gross. <laughs> that was a good one for sure. So, yeah, you get your serving of blood and descriptive gore in this. It's it's pretty awesome. Um, 
So then the townsfolks, a few of them start getting worried. We mostly follow like the leaders of this uh, island municipality here. It's like what the mayor and, and the sheriff uh, and another <laughs> your cliche motley batch. Of yeah, it, it's pretty much what you yeah, it's what you think of when you think of, okay, here's the creature horror, and the people are gonna are gonna band together and 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 help get rid of them. And you got uh, the town leaders, and you got the sheriff, and the deputy, and you got the the tough tough sailor guys. Yeah, the grand and, granddaughter. And then it's like the the insect meals are just the partiers of the island going around. Yeah, just the regular people. Do you remember? So they, so they're discovering the rat and the dead dog, and they're kind of baffled by it. From what I remember, they they purposely call in Peter Hubbard, the scientist, don't they? Yeah, they they think it's rats. But they're not sure. And then they call in Peter and then he calls in his assistant Wanda. And there's some there's some romantic tension because Elizabeth, the daughter or the granddaughter of uh one of the guys, she she kinda had a crush on Peter, but she thinks uh oh, he'll never he'll never notice me because he's working with Wanda. Yeah. Peter's a former resident of that island, so they already knew each other. So yeah. that's what. So they had that connection with this Harvard scientist. He really wasn't even uh, that much of a tenured scientist or anything, didn't he? Just graduate Harvard. Yeah, yeah, he was a pretty new, newly graduated guy. I think there was even another person that was above him. That was the. I think it was the the son of one of the guys and and Peter was his maybe was his assistant or had maybe had been his one of his students. Do they introduce him at all cuz I don't remember anyone. No. They 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 mention him but he's never actually there as a character. I thought it was kind of odd that they yeah, this, that they, is they even talked about him. Yeah. Is that supposed to be his superintendent? In I his think feelings? so. Yeah, they mentioned him a couple of times. I can't remember his name. He was he was Dylan? Elizabeth's dad. You know what it reminded me of? Um, this whole setup reminded me of Arachnophobia, the nineteen ninety Jeff Daniels movie, Frank Marshall. Yeah, kinda. Um, so you've seen it then, right? Yes, I have seen that. That so was what I saw. So the Way people back. that haven't, I'd say uh, it's about this photographer takes an assignment down in South America to film some exotic and rare uh, spiders, species of spiders deep in the Amazon. And he ends up getting um, a secretion of venom from this super spider that's never seen mankind before because they go so deep in the jungle. And anyway, his coffin, his body gets sent back to California and this spider hitches a ride 
and he ends up breeding with the house spiders in Northern California, and it creates this hybrid spider. So no, no uh, radiation and mutation involved. Well, there is mutation, more biological, yeah. of these two species. But in terms of, um, so these spiders start taking over the town and killing dogs and killing people, just like in arachnophobia, and they call up a uh, arachnoph arachnid uh scientists i don't know what they're called but and he sends his assistant <laughs> to, to the town because he doesn't take it that seriously because this guy's <laughs> got such an inflated ego this, this is the same guy who hired the photographer actually in south america and, and neglectfully let him die and put him in peril and um so he kind of caused it and he ended up sending his assistant to it because he didn't much care and think uh, that it was going to be a big case or anything. So anyway, Peter's this guy who gets sent in and yeah, him and Wanda Lidstrom, they really they really uh, paint this romance like two people couldn't be more of a couple, you know? Yeah, and then yet poor, poor Elizabeth. Who's on the outside looking? You got you know. so much sympathy for Elizabeth fawning after Peter. Oh, I know. It's, I felt bad for her. <laughs> not not the Elizabeth that's in our current book. This is this is a much nicer Elizabeth. Okay, and um, so he never hints that Wanda and Peter are actually officially a thing because they're actually really not. No, but she thinks so. Though, right. though there is that that one scene where he's he's giving her a massage, and it's like, what are you, Peter? Now you had just told Elizabeth that there was <laughs> nothing between you and Wanda, and and look at you were giving her a massage, and, and she's talking about purring. <laughs> and Eli saves this as a, a twist later in the book, like he builds up this tension and romance, like hope. Oh, Elizabeth and Peter like got such a connection, but hey, how is she ever gonna take him away from Wanda? Because Wanda's perfect, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, she's like smart and pretty, and she's I'd just like, you know the perfect. I'd like to person. make I'd like to make a comment that the Wanda Lidstrom, the young, hot, beautiful scientist, smart woman, is very much like a Dan Brown character. How he'd always inserts a smart, beautiful, young scientific or doctor uh, female character to go along with Robert Langdon and solve crypt, uh, uh, different uh, cryptex and different passwords and codes and stuff. And I felt the Dan Brown vibes in it. I don't know if you read those books, but I have, I have read Da Vinci Code, but that's the only one. Yeah, if you've so he kind of does the same formula for all of his movies with that. The da Vinci Code has the most significance and the highest stakes. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, moving on. Um, that's kind of the start of it. And so they come in, they start doing their tests like, well, maybe it's the rats. And, and they and they just do a lot of verbose like hypothesis or speculations of what it could be, you know. 
What makes them realize that it was the cockroaches? Do you remember? That's when they have that uh, the really disgusting rabbit scene. They, they, they think it's a rat, so they catch this rabbit, and we read this right near Easter, so it, it was like, <laughs> oh, you're, you're ruining our Easter. Thanks. <laughs> so, so they get a rabbit, and they put it in a put it in a, in a I think it was a lobster or a crab trap or something. And they're watching, mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, let's just wait for the rats to come. Oh, it's just some cockroaches. Well, that's no big deal. And then, you know, here go the cockroaches at the poor rabbit's eyes and that's when they uh, they figure out oh it's not rats it's the cockroaches and uh the one guy <laughs> oh what was his name the 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 guy who runs the dump i forget his name but he uh he's taking pictures he's climbed up in the tree and he's taking all these pictures and 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 everyone's telling him come on get going get going and 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 him and the sheriff very they're very nearly eaten by the by the cockroaches, but they do manage to escape at that time. Nipping at their hilarious. Yeah, it, it was a it was a, a close escape. And so then they start getting their cockroach specimens, and it breaks off into more more talk with the locals uh explaining it to them about the nature of cockroaches and it's like it's no way that it can be them and this is like again this is a natural an- anomaly and yeah because they're they're related to to termites so this mutation is making them a little bit more termite like and social yeah because what they kind of form more of a tight army type of a unit yeah and they 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 communicate with with the pheromones and And there's a mother brain yes and that that's kind of that was a freaky thing too yeah it was a, a bunch of them all connected but they were little, a bunch of little ones, normal sized ones, connected, and it was like, ah, freaky. That'd be think, horrifying. Yes, uh, that. <laughs> I think that was the one that at the end, I think he took that one, or maybe he took part of that one to study. So hey, they, they could have set up for a sequel, but I guess it never happened. Yeah, didn't. What did Peter do? Didn't he like climb down that abyss and just like? torch the shit out of it or something yeah yeah he climbed down and he took the he took the specimen and then and then lit it all on fire but at at, at, then there was a whole nother there was that that whole extra weird scene at the end yeah it was like a tag on second ending it was i liked it but it was written very different and i was like Kept thinking it was maybe it was a dream or something, but no, it wasn't. It was real. Yeah, all it did was just degrade and undermine Peter throughout because he's like, no, this is the mother, this is the mother, uh, this is the queen bee, this is the brainchild, this is the one and only. If we get this and destroy it, it'll all be over. Yeah, but he 
you missed the whole extra backup colony or whatever it was. Yeah, it was like it was like essentially it's pacemaker or something or the second stringers or something. They were they yeah. were good enough to be first teamers. And yeah, then they, they got to they got to live in a cemetery though. That's kind of cool. Was that in a crypt? Yeah, they they didn't well, they went there and they were about to go down and look in and do it, but that was when the 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 forest fire kicked back up, so they never did. And then they think, oh well, it wasn't there, but but there was. There was two. Okay, so let's rewind it before we go over the complete ending. Um, so they start uh, the the roaches. They 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 kill this dude that's humping the earth like a hole in the earth. Oh yeah, that was that was a crazy crazy part. I don't even know what was. I mean, he was he was on drugs, I guess. So you know, I guess that explains it. Yeah, but was Eli on drugs? Because what the hell was that shit? Yeah, I don't. I don't know how he thought of that. It was. It was very strange. Yeah, that was one of those ones where you throw down your book and you're like, "What?" Yeah, like, where in the world did this? Did, did, <laughs> did you ever come up with that idea? But but. Right. I mean, what drunk guy that, humps the earth anyway? Is that a well, thing? I, I had never heard of that, but he said that they they were attracted to like you know get banging on the ground. So I, maybe he thought, well, how, how could I have someone do it? Oh, that got an idea, and there you go. Right, right. it send out send out micro seismic tremors to them and. So they attack this guy. And then it's a lot of people since Cape Cod and in the summertime is known as a country or a party party area. Uh, a lot of these people are coming home from the parties and getting attacked whenever they're like, there's a couple having sex in the woods and they get attacked and a few people. Yeah. Coming. So, and then they, I kind of hated the characters that we follow that are in the room with the scientists. They kind of shack like Peter makes a makeshift um, uh, laboratory in the uh, lighthouse, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, the old abandoned lighthouse. So that was a nice little setting, and they're able to jar up some some cockroaches there, and I, I really enjoyed all the different information that was put into it for me like Hanner that we hear about the nature of cockroaches and stuff I like learning while I'm reading books too you know yeah it was interesting I didn't know a lot of that stuff well there was the one thing that it was kind of funny where he was talking about how well they're animals so you can't you can't attribute human emotions to them they're not being evil or whatever but then he also says they're not being cannibals. and Well, they are being cannibals because cockroaches eat each other. Cannibal isn't a human emotion. It's eating your own species. Yeah, pretty much it just bit him in the ass. His ass should have got killed in the end. Not Wanda. Yeah. Wanda wasn't as arrogant as him, you know? Yeah, I did like I liked her. Oh, her her death was pretty bad. You know, she dies and they put her up in the room and then the floor collapses and she's being eaten by them again. Her corpse is being eaten by them and she falls 
falls through the ceiling. It's like, boy, Wanda is not getting any kind of, she's not getting any respect even after death for Wanda. Yeah, she was too young and beautiful to die. You almost thought that it felt like it was going to be the ending right there because they were breaking out of the jars and, and, and they were invading inside the place and, and Peter even falls and almost dies. Doesn't Elizabeth save him or something? Yeah, with uh, with the fire, the fire uh, extinguisher. You oh, spray yeah, it so on him, and they suffocated. How did the first fire happen? How did the forest fire happen? Oh gosh, well, that was the scene right before that. It, it's not really the climax, but boy, it was the. It was the big scene. It was the Sunday school kids. And you, you don't think it's going to be a big part of the story because all oh, Sunday school kids and, and the pastor and they're out on the boat in the storm. Oh, no. Well, you think that's just a little subplot. But then, no, that turns into the biggest, biggest, grossest part of the book because there's a storm and they managed to make it to the beach. And, and then here come the bugs. So half of them try to run back out to the boat, and they a big wave hits them, and they drown. And then the other <laughs> half of the kids, the bugs start eating them. And and the the, the two siblings, oh, the description of that was really gross. They're like looking into each other's empty eye sockets as they die. And it the, was the a past beachfront beach holocaust. It was insane. Oh, it was yeah. And the pastor, you know, the, they've eaten his face, and he's blind. He's down to, like, a, a, a bloody skull, and he's screaming. And you're like, oh, man, how is he going to top it? And he doesn't. Uh, it, the rest of the book's good, but that is, like, the scene. He does not top that scene. But oh, then later, yeah, for sure. I've shared this excerpt at, at different, in the different horror books on Facebook and stuff, and Oh my God! It's like his John Milton moment. It's like Paradise Lost, but like with like with like Sunday school kids on the beachfront. It's 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 morbidly gross. It's uh, yeah. It's like that. If there's a, a horror Hall of Fame, that needs to be in it. But anyway, yeah. so then the 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 dad of the two siblings, he shows up later, and he sees all this carnage on the beach, and and he goes crazy. And he has a, what he has, he had a flare, and so he and and gas, and he just starts going around, flinging the gas and shooting the flares at the bugs, and he knows his kids were there, and his kids are dead, so he's like he got nothing to live for, so he's going around <laughs> torching the bugs, then he just starts torching the forest, and he burns himself, and then here comes the forest fire. Wait, and that that whole part. That's wow. how the forest fire started. He's he was torching himself well he, he was trying for the bugs but he Wait, he knew his his kids were dead so in the tractor on that scene or something oh there might have been i don't remember i thought he was so just how, running around how was he did he have a flamethrower or something he had he had gas and i think he had a he had a he had a a, a flare if I remember correctly, let me see. He was running around with flare. He had like an aerosol gas. can and a gas 
in the yeah, torch. something something like that. It's kind of hard to imagine that the forest would even that close to the ocean catch fire when anyone knows who's lived on the ocean front. It's like everything's just soaked near the shores. Yeah, we would go on vacation. And this is Washington, so it's a whole other coast, but it has forests that go right up to the to to the coast as well, and it's very, very rainy there. It's absolutely spectacular up there, isn't it? Yeah, there's the there's the rainforest even above that. That was like my favorite vacation as a kid, going just like green everywhere. Yeah, that that whole west coast, the northwest coast northern california oregon washington most beautiful part of america geographically oh yeah i liked it a lot um so they still don't even like call the national guard or something they still think they could like handle this do you remember that they're not yeah, even they telling the residents. yeah they never do call them that they at the end they say if this doesn't work, we're going to have to do it, but, but it, but it <laughs> yeah, works. I'm, so You're down to like the last like 30 pages and they're like, well, if this one, if, the, if this bomb doesn't work, then we're going to have to call in the guard. And they're still arguing about that, like not wanting to tell everyone. <laughs> yeah. And they're using the, I thought, you know, he had that, he has a, he has a red box that they keep referring to. I'm going, what's in that? Is it going to be like a nuke or something? And it wasn't. It was a radioactive stuff. So I was like, I was pretty close. But he uses wow. it to uh, he uses it to track them back to their nest. Oh, what was it like a radon meter? Yeah, the, he, he fed them. It was a radioactive liquid and he oh. put it on their food and they ate it. And then he used the Geiger counter to follow them. Then they went back to the hive. Yeah. And that's, that's how he found them. Yeah, usually I'm going to do a segment called The Morgue where it talks about all the death scenes. But I started doing these notes before I even put together this podcast or anything. So I don't have a list of the death scenes or how they happen. So oh, I'm gosh. Episodes I could go over those, but we've already gone over a few. Any other ones that come to your mind? Uh, well, there's the one because there's the other, the other couple with Bonnie and and Craig, and they're they're just barely, you know, they're starting to get together, and 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 finally, when when they're happy together, here come the bugs, and and they they eat Craig, so. That was that was kind of sad for for poor Bonnie. She goes goes a little crazy, and they literally have to kick her out of the lighthouse. Yeah, Bonnie is one of those characters that shouldn't have been in it. Yeah, she didn't really have a whole lot of a uh, of a part to it, though. She was walking the dog at the beginning. It's like we live inside Elizabeth's head of her pining over Peter, and then we get the Bonnie in there so that she could just talk about Peter too. And it's like, all they're doing is like making sandwiches and shit. <laughs> yeah. They, they didn't really do much beyond that, but Hey, they made fish stew. 
<laughs> they, they they cleaned the lighthouse. You could tell it was it was the early eighties. If it was nowadays, they'd just be hanging out on their phones and not even engaged in what was going on. Yeah, that's you know, that's the thing with, with new horror. Everybody has cell phones, so you you don't get isolated. It's kind of sad. It's not like the olden days. Yeah, I know it. It cuts out a lot of possibilities and and uh, point and points of terror and stuff. And I was talking to a used book seller at a shop here in Brighton, Michigan, and she was like, "Um." I get people, readers who come in and they ask for books but they won't buy books if they don't have cell phones in it. That's, that's just weird. That's the world we live in now, Hezekiah St. Raven. Yeah, it's kind of sad. I miss the olden days. I think if I were to ever write something, I'd just set it in the olden days anyway of like the seventies and eighties. That's what I go for. Right. Yeah, you can't you can't just look everything up on the internet and you don't have a phone in your pocket everywhere you go. You can like really be isolated and doomed. <laughs> yeah. And um so that's what I like to stick to. I like the vintage horror. I like the old gothic settings and stuff. I don't oh, like yeah, I love that. technology infringes on horror stories because I think horror should be more traditional. And that's That reminds me of one book that a lot of people like. It's a current book, and I probably shouldn't say I don't like it because it's very popular. But have you ever read um, Hex? Uh, by who? Oh, I don't remember his name. It's the witch book. He it got translated. I think I think it was originally from Denmark. Maybe not. Let me see if I can find his name. But it it's it's very technological. They all have apps that they uh, they use it to track the witch as she goes around. Uh, Thomas Old Huvelt. I think is how you pronounce his name. When did this come out? Mm, a couple of years ago. Maybe three, four years. It's very technological. I didn't, I didn't care for it, but it's a very popular book. So I shouldn't say I don't like it because people don't like when you criticize their favorite books. <laughs> Yeah, it's the opinion tacking culture. Yeah, it's like I didn't like that book. Well, is there something wrong with you then? Like, oh, I didn't say you can't like it. I just said I didn't like it. Yeah, I know it could get pretty hostile. It's like um, people will be like, "That's just my opinion." Just, yeah, I don't care if people attack my opinion or not my feelings don't really get hurt it's it's just become that way on social media and stuff and you just expect it so 
Yeah. Yeah. A, a book I really like that a lot of people don't is Head Full of Ghosts. I love that book. Yeah, I hear people talking about that one, too. It, it's it's very divisive. People either really like it or really don't like it. I think I lost you on that one. Um, I said, who wrote that? Oh, uh, that is... Um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember. I should know, because it's... It's a very, he has uh, books out all the time. Oh, Paul Tremblay. Oh, okay. Not That's Peter only one Tremblay, the guy who wrote Paul. the amp. Paul Tremblay. He wrote, he's written a couple others. He wrote that Cabin at the End of the World recently. The only one I've read of his is The Head Full of Ghosts. And I really like that one. So I need to read his other, his other couple books. Oh, we also have to mention that it was uh, that uh, when the boat was rolling in, it was due to the heavy tempest. That's why yeah, it the big storm. Yeah, there was the big storm. Yeah, so it was like this Jurassic Park-like type of storm, tropical storm that rolled in with the tide, and it just smashed up against the store shoreline. And yeah. uh, they ended up getting crushed by it. <laughs> yeah. What an awesome scene. Yeah, it destroyed the boat. That led to the uh, that really, really gross part. Yeah, it was the like the Holocaust was baked with doomsday and written in prose form. Yeah, that, that part, that, that like is one of the top scenes I have ever read, I think. that That's one that you should read the book just for that, if nothing for else. Sure, it's it's a feast of horror. So, so there's the fire in the uh, forest, and they start to argue over how to kill the roaches, whether it be with the kerosene or freeze them with the dry ice. Um, how did they combat the forest fire? I think they just called in the the regular fire department. That's what finally got them to uh, evacuate the island, though, because they didn't want to tell everyone about the bugs. Mm-hmm. But they could tell them about the fire. Yeah. Okay, so that's when they evacuated people? Yeah, it was when, when the forest fire, because the houses were very near to all the trees so they evacuate the island and then they but the, they go the around the sheriff still too stubborn to phone the coast guard and refuses any sort of outside help not wanting to cry wolf over the roaches yeah they still don't do that but at least they got the the townsfolk out of danger and then this is the part where Peter and Wanda are like, you know, we really need to hunker down as scientists and form plan B here. And then that's when they do the hand massage when it's they finally like pinpoint like the source, <laughs> the source yeah. of terror. It's like, oh, here, let me 
me give you a massage. And meanwhile, and, and behind them. And they're discussing like the abnormalities of these insects. And it, it was a bit weird. Meanwhile, behind them, the bugs are figuring out how to get out of their, their boxes. Yeah, that's right. That's that's when they're in the jars and starting to attack. Oh, so yeah, these these roaches are. Um, I never really. What was the cause of the mutation? They say it was due to a change in poison control methods. Yeah, they kind of. They never really explain it in detail, but I think that's kind of what they were saying. They got a new, a new poison, but. It, all, I guess all it did was mutate them. Yeah, so it's like they don't even you. F- you feel like that could have been blamed on some politician or some leader there locally. They don't yeah, even because they, re- they always like cast someone to blame. It's like in the Toxic Avenger. It's like that nuclear power plant that, and the corrupt mayor that's in on it due to the toxic waste being dumped and stuff. So he's the cause of that. And yeah, they could have added something like that, but it's a pretty right. long book as it is. Yeah, they could have well, cut out a lot of like the fake ass romance out of it and focused on other aspects. Another complaint people had was they felt it was going to be like a home invasion flick. That would have been good if they had had some of that. That would have been kind of creepy. That would have been more along the lines of, uh, did you phobia too? Yeah, exactly. That's what did you join the lobby Okay, you, you broke up again there, so I didn't get that. Did you join that lobby of gripes pertaining uh, to a the little bit home invasion that people were saying that they were disappointed? A little bit. I would have I would have enjoyed some of that. Because that would have been a little bit creepier. Could have get, got some suspense, but I still enjoyed the book a lot. Yeah, I I didn't think about it while it, while I read the book, but when they were saying that, I felt like it could have been more like that, and it would have been better because we really only have two scenes where they invade a building, and that would be. Um, the lighthouse laboratory and the house by the cemetery when Elizabeth's going on the walk at the end and they like turn to the house and jump off. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's written very differently too. It's just very compactly written as opposed to all his other stuff. Yeah, it felt like he wanted to tell multiple endings, so he kind of had to do those, like, tag this on, tag that on, for him to feel satisfied that the story was complete. I really thought it was going to be a dream. When I was was reading that, I'm going, oh, this is written completely different. This has got to be a dream. Because, you know, he's like, he's going to to save her, and she's running to him, and she falls through the the roof and reaching up at him it's like oh this is this has got to be a dream yeah but then it wasn't so kind of weird yeah at this point they're finally hooking up 
in the grandpa's house. Oh, yeah, and grandpa was happy about it. Yeah, that grandpa gave her a little smirk. That was totally weird. <laughs> he just was happy that the bloodline wasn't being tainted, I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. Because it was a, you know, another local, more or Scholar, less. Scholar, dude, yeah. I mean, if you're... If your granddaughter's going to get knocked up in your own beach house, it should be by a Harvard scientist, I guess. Yeah, who, who saved your, your island. Yep. He, um... Did he save it two times? He was in the explosion, and then he ends up... Yeah, he, uh... He was he went down in the in the thing and got the the brain bug and then I think he was the one who who torched all that. Then who killed him that process bride and he was like there'd be more cockroaches. Like Everything that we've seen up till now has been a complete, ab- like, extreme aberrant behavior by these cockroaches. Like, your expertise has little factors, so why are you going to say definitively, like, that there can't be another base of them? Yeah, and uh, I think Elizabeth even said that, asking, oh, are you sure? Because the, the antennas of one of the ones he saved was moving in a certain area, certain direction. And she goes, well, maybe there are more there. And he's like, no, no, there's not. So yeah, he, he may have saved them, but that was a pretty big lapse of judgment. He should have listened to her. Yeah. Um, at least they didn't make her like, um, a superhero like they make some of the final girls in slasher movies and stuff or in other books where yeah, they become the, was... where they start out afraid and uneducated and ignorant and insular and then they turn out to be like triumphant yeah she pretty much kept her character through the whole through the whole book so that was good and by that you mean boring as hell pretty much yeah i mean it, it could have been interesting if she had grown a little bit but i don't know then that that book the, none of the characters were were all that great it's more just the 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 really gross and gory scenes and the prose is is what what i enjoyed in it the characters were all eh. It's like you can discern, like, okay. <laughs> Owns the boat, you know. It kind of got jumbled a little there. That was part of because I read half the book last and finished second part. So that was just my perspective. Yeah, you kind of broke up there, so I, I missed some of that.
perspective of the characters that um i think it got on the recording but i forget what i was saying uh, but no. yeah they weren't that interesting they he could have no. done with a, out a few of them yeah they were there was a lot of them and i mean eh, you know i can't remember half their names the, like the you could have tied some of those characters into the same person like yeah you could have made like the guy who owns the boat also the mayor you know yeah yeah i didn't what was his name scott or something i mean he didn't really do anything because not everyone died either no it was usually a lot of extraneous characters who didn't even weren't even inserted into the main character group no that in a way it kind of reminded that Kind of remind me of slugs because that is the way they did that too. It, like it said a little scene, and then oh, <laughs> they got killed, and then it said another little scene. Oh, they got killed, and, and this one, you know, you see the characters coming from the party, and then they got killed, but they didn't do anything else. Yeah, I could just see Sean Hudson being like, "I can do this," and he just <laughs> did the British version of it. I wonder which came first between slugs and the nest i'm not sure it had to have been the nest because i think the slugs was a few years later yeah could be um anyway uh some quotes he had was he felt like any strays after they collapsed the main neurostructure, that any strays were unable to be dangerous, which obviously proved to be false. Uh, I'm going to run down a few things here. Um, uh, They all start drinking rum at the end of it after they crush the first one. That's how she ends up in Peter's room, because she's drunk. Yeah, I remember that now. Okay. As if he had to have that, like, safe net clause, like, hey, she isn't a hoe, like, she was just a little drunk, and Peter deserved it. Yeah. Uh, um, the sex scene was filled with ocean metaphors and sailing the high seas. That, yeah, that was pretty weird. (laughs) And and, and that, that definitely felt tacked on. It's like, okay, yeah, they, what was the point of that? Yeah, when you want to do metaphors for a romance, it pro, if you want to be taken seriously, you shouldn't do puns of, like, the local environment, like the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, okay, so I got a few notes here about that second colony of roaches. It was the resurrection through anal... Trophallaxis. That was that was pretty gross. (laughs) And they started cannibalizing each other too, and they formed the second one because they weren't good enough to be on the first one. So it was a backup colony, backup server. They they did pretty good in invading that house, though, for being second stringers. Yeah, it was their uprising in the cemetery. Yeah, because they they were they actually invaded a house. So yeah, they, they were the only ones who did that. 
Um, that was all my notes on the narrative. Do you have any other notes? Uh, well, let's see. I have all my stuff I wrote. There's, there's a ton. I think we went over a lot of it, though. Yeah. The, the two main scenes that I remember is the, the rabbit one, because the eyeball, and, and the beach one. Because that's just, that was, that was something. I do wish they had kind of done a little more with the cemetery. Because that, that's where the second group, the second bunch of bugs were. But I really thought they were going to, like, you know, go down into the grave and stuff. But they didn't. Yeah, at that point, I was just wanting them to end it and wrap it up. Like, you should have just wrapped that shit up. It was a it was a long book. It was it was longer than it probably should have been. And I have a lot to of, mention, a lot of I have to mention the um, excoriation I have is he got a little lazy throughout the book. He starts really high. You could tell he was rewriting paragraphs, rewriting sentences, philosophically thinking about them, um, really embroidering the uh, analogies. And it was yeah. gorgeous. And it really just lost steam and starts to taper off throughout. And with that, that's when my interest waned in it. Yeah, you notice a lot of, of creature horror books, that they're not that long. They're, you know, a couple hundred pages. This thing was, I don't know what it was, like almost 500 or something, I think. Yeah, it was 440 or 460, something like that. Yeah, um, it was. it was pretty long. It was a bit too long, but... I mean, the zebra books, they print the text pretty big, and he started new chapters like every little bit, and that would skip a page. So, yeah, there were a lot of short chapters, but it still felt really long and everything. And I think, um, how you said a lot of them are short and everything, yeah, they kind of have to be short when you're dealing with um, a voiceless villain, I think, because there isn't that that much from their side to explain you know and for them no, to they're, they're just there eating people because that's what they do so that's why this was filled with um a lot of the romance and a lot of the exposition on the research of the roaches they were the scientists were there would give exposition because the roaches couldn't tell their story or why they yeah. acted the way they could have cut out about probably half the science stuff and, and, and a lot of the romance and then add in another couple of home invasion. That would have been a good trade-off, I think. Yeah, simplified the character list a little bit. Added yeah. some home invasion. I bet a, when it came to the amount of research, he probably did tons and tons. And he probably only used probably <coughs> 25% of it, if that. Probably, yeah. And, th and there was a, still a lot in there. <coughs> yeah, so to wrap it up, it does, it does lose a lot of its poetry. And it isn't that graphic and detailed as it goes on. No, a lot of the kind of pushing through it to get through it you could tell yeah a lot of the the really gross parts were more towards the beginning 
but yeah, the, 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 the beach Sunday school massacre, that, I think that was maybe about two thirds of the way through. So at least he saved something for nearest the end. Right. With that one exception. Exactly. Um, all right. I think that was pretty much all I had to say on it. Um, there'll be a few more segments afterwards. And, uh, so I had fun discussing it with you and discussing it throughout the month and reading your descriptions and everything. And, Thanks for coming on, and hopefully me and you can get back together and talk about more horror. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We should we could do this with some of our other books. It's yeah, hopefully I could get a, get a copy of We Always Lived in a Castle, and uh, we could review that on here. Yeah, that's a good one. Elizabeth, too. Have you been reading any of the discussion on that one? No, I've been moving the past week, and I haven't had much of an internet connection, so I haven't been keeping up on that one. Well, Elizabeth, it's not part of the paperbacks of horror, (coughs) but it was re-released by Valancourt, and it might as well have been, because it's it's crazy, too. It wasn't released by Valancourt? Well, it it was released by Valancourt, but it was a few years back, so it's not part of the paperbacks oh. from Hell line. But it, you know, it might as well have been because if if they hadn't put it out, they could have put it out now. It's it's a it's it's another one where the the prose is a a big draw, but also there are some interesting characters in this one. Nothing gory though; it's very atmospheric. And, and weird. Good. So if you listen to that, that's a good group to join. Definitely. Um, I'll be tuning that into that again soon. Um, and uh, yeah, so this was JBM from Paul Parkonum. Thank you for joining me. Say goodbye to the people. Goodbye, people. I I enjoyed talking to you. Check out The Nest. It's not a perfect book, but it's got some really great parts in it. And overall, it's an enjoyable read. You'll, You'll probably like it, I think. We're out. See ya. Pulp Arcanum is a podcast featuring content and discussions on the pulp fiction genres of 20th century literature, horror, adventure, fantasy, and sci-fi. The fantastical stories published in the 1920s pulp magazines ignited the era with an explosion of strange and weird tales. To participate in upcoming skull sessions on the podcast, Email me directly at pulparcanum at gmail.com. That's P-U-L-P-A-R-C-A-N-U-M. For Facebook, there's a page, Pulp Arcanum Podcast. Also, many paperback collection photos are featured on the Instagram.